Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a business, I've met many, many successful people, entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes a person successful? Do we know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create success for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. This week, I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Carl Olivier, CEO of Sustained, a company he has built from the ground up to create positive impact on the world and the society's daughters, and of course, the next generation will inherit. Carl has worked with the likes of Microsoft, to name but one fairly small company, and has built a wealth of experience within companies that have created truly disruptive technologies. Now, of course, used by so many millions around the world. I've got an awful lot to learn. I'm going to be very humbled by this gentleman's presence. Heard so much about him and the research we did into Carl's background um, has been, um, well, you'll find out for yourself the reason why it's been such an enjoyable experience. Uh, Carl Olivier, uh, let me make sure we get that that lovely French sounding surname right. Carl Olivier, welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, really a uh, great pleasure to be here. And I've got to ask you straight away, um, since I love picking up accents and dialects, you've got to start by telling us from where you originate, Carl. Indeed. Uh, so I'm originally from South Africa, um, from a city called Port Elizabeth. Actually, it is now called Quebeca. Um, it was recently renamed, and I, um, I must admit that that was something to get used to. Uh, but yeah, I, I hail from Port Elizabeth, now known as Quebec in South Africa. Um, but I also lived in Cape Town, also in South Africa, prior to moving to London, which is now going on 18 years ago. Wow. And Port Elizabeth and Cape Town, like not bad cricket venues, actually. Um, so, so Carl, uh, putting cricket to one side, tell us, if you would, about, uh, about this amazing background, the journey that you've been on. I mean, your journey is, uh, is, is pretty colourful spectacular uh, and I'm particularly interested the reason why we know you're going to be a great guest today is is kind of understanding what led to this decision to build a business sustained um, and and the reasons why you've done it okay sure um, uh, do you want me to start with the reasons why I do or should we build up to that um, uh, I'd love you to start direction? right at, yeah I'd love you to start right at the beginning beginning and we'll build right up to it if that's okay right. okay no problem so uh, yeah originally from South Africa I uh, went to university but didn't finish my father is a professor of philosophy so interesting childhood I'd imagine um, in a strange way um, but uh, didn't finish university I mainly because I didn't quite know what I wanted to do uh, started working in um, IT, doing kind of freelance consultancy for large companies like Volkswagen. Um, however, quickly decided I wanted to get involved in, back then, this was the dot-com era where websites were being built at astronomical rates. Uh, so joined a startup in South Africa, ended up running their engineering team, um, having self-learned programming, um, and then kind of went on to go through the dot-bomb era at the turn of the century, which was an experience. Then kind of decided to build my own business back then in Cape Town, um, building out developer tools for people that had no idea about databases and backends, but still wanted to build experiences that had those um, kind of dynamic backends powering them. 
So I did that for five years or so. Um, that's actually what brought me to London is we started doing work for a number of UK companies, including um, people like Unilever um, and, and some other uh, big names or mutual uh, and decided to come over here to build our office out. Most of the engineers were back in Cape Town. Um, however, things changed. Some of the folks in the business decided they wanted to move on. And at that point in time, I, I managed to intersect with Skype, who was just starting to disrupt the world of telco, um, as we all hopefully remember. They were looking for people. And um, I decided to give my then fiance a far more stable lifestyle and join um, uh, Skype. This was just before and during the eBay acquisition. And I spent eight incredibly wonderful years working um, in Skype, of which three were at Microsoft when, you know, later it was acquired. My journey there was incredibly, uh, what's the right term, turbulent, but in a good way, I guess. There were so many changes. There was so much disruption. I, you know, saw the, the, the journey from the acquisition at, at eBay, the journey during the eBay years. Then Silver Lake acquired, um, you know, Skype. Uh, from eBay, and then wait, later went on to to sell it to Microsoft. But in the intervening years, there was a lot of change. You know, I ended up having to apply for my own job at one point um, through restructuring, um, and then started building out the next generation of Skype's core signaling engine and moving that from the peer-to-peer -to, -peer to the cloud. So that was a, a, an incredible journey where I learned a lot, worked with a, a, amazing engineers and people across so many different walks of life from so many different countries. Um, I spent three years at Microsoft, uh, which was also an incredible experience, like seeing the inside of such a, a large and well-known behemoth in the, the software world. Um, but, you know, after three years there, uh, there were a lot of changes, um, different jobs were moving to different parts of the world. And, and I and a few of the other folks we'd worked with made a choice that we didn't really want to move, uh, but we still wanted to work together. And at that point, Twilio came along, um, with Twilio being at that point pre-IPO, really disrupting the communication as a service space, being a front runner and a, and a leader in that. Um, anyone that's used Uber or WhatsApp will have inadvertently used uh, Twilio's underlying technologies. So a bunch of us kind of joined that um, ended up building out Twilio Estonia and then an entire new product range over four years. Went through the IPO with Twilio from the inside, which was, again, an incredible journey. The Twilio years taught me so much about building teams and building technology that scale that just built on the experiences that I had back at Microsoft. Um, I realized while I was there that I should probably go back to my kind of the beginning, which is running my own business. Um, and I also wanted to do something a lot more, uh, what's the right term, I guess, uh, ambitious around impact. So this is what led me to Sustained um, along with my co-founder, Mike. But yeah, it was, it was, it was really a, a journey that I got to see technology used in ways that, that you know, boggled the brain in terms of the scale. And then what that scale, where you take that technology, what that empowers and what it really allows to happen and the impact of the change. If you look at Skype's disruption of telco, you look at Twilio, again, telco, but in a very different way, uh, disrupting an entire market uh, and a way of working. And that's really what I, what I wanted to go back to is building a business where, where we had that potential of, of, of impact. But the space, uh, sustainability, uh, which is very much not my background, was something that really started growing from, from my kids, I won't lie, my daughters, and the way they look at the world and go, well, like, this can't be right. Like, like we can't be doing this. You know, we, we need to do better. Um, and then taking that other experience and going, well, how do, how do I, little old me, how do I impact this? Or is this something that, that I need to just hope someone else, the government and big business to solve for them? Um, and my experience tells me, no, we can build tech and we can empower people like you and me 
to actually make an impact, right? That actually helps us fix the way we live in the world, how we produce and consume, um, et cetera. So I know that was a bit of a long-winded answer, um, but but uh, yeah, that's that's a bit of a synopsis of the journey. I think that was a brilliant synopsis, actually. Uh, thank you for that, Carl. Um, so then for the uninitiated, what exactly is sustained? What do you do? Drill it down for us, if you would. Sure. Um, the, the, the caveat is that is an evolving uh, situation because we are a startup. Um, and, and anyone that's been in startup land knows that you you generally have to make choices a lot and change and evolve. Um, but but let me give you kind of the ambition and uh, the kind of where we want to go and where we are today on that journey and, and where we're going. So the ambition is that we really need to provide the world, and that sounds very grandiose, but bear with me, with better systems for more sustainable life cycles. And our ambition is to help build the infrastructure that makes that possible, not only from a, you know, empowering people to have the right information to hand, to make better choices around that. How do we produce things? How do we grow things? How do we transport things? How do we package them? But also how do we make that information relevant to other people in the life cycle so that they can use that to make better informed choices on their side, which then can in turn inform the next part of the life cycle all the way back around. So we start getting a better system. So that's the very overarching, very high level ambition. Um, a lot of my research at the point of us thinking about starting the business and the discovery process and uh, understand like, well, where do we start? Because this is an enormously complex space. I mean, the intricacies here um, are continued to completely confound um, me temporarily, and then we you know, lean in, obviously, uh, but, but it is incredibly complex. And we can't boil that ocean. We have to start somewhere. So when we looked around, we looked at things like ESG, carbon accounting, offsetting, you know, all the different things that, that you start seeing in the tech space that are looking to help a more sustainable future uh, be possible. We felt that the consumer, the, the, the everyday man and woman on the street, you know, living a busy life, buying things, you know, using things, et cetera, was really an underserved um, part of the, the life cycle, actor, if you will. So we thought, why don't we try and find a way to help those people, you and me, every day when we're making our purchasing decisions, do that in a way that we can be more sustainable, right? Because currently it's really, really hard. There are very little, there are very few tools out there that help you be able to weigh up price, availability, quality with impact, right? Like how bad is that for the environment? How bad is that for you know, deforestation? Um, it is so complex, the, 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 the things under the hood there, that you know, for busy people, you need something that you can easily understand, you can establish trust with, and then you can also use it in your day-to-day -day experiences, right? And that's really tricky, taking complex science and data and then kind of translating it for someone that's really busy, that also has other things like price and you know, needs it tomorrow, and then be able to factor that into your decision. So that's where we started. Um, and that was a, an incredibly interesting journey. And we shipped an app um, just to kind of fast forward a little bit uh, in February this year. Um, we chose to focus on the UK food grocery sector. Um, to bound kind of, you know, the, 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 the target area for us to try and see if we can solve this. And we used underlying science called life cycle assessment. And there's databases that allow, that allow you to kind of understand the impact of production all the way back from like farm to fork. And it, and it considers impact what we call damage pathways that is not just carbon. So we, we actually assess 16 impact categories um, through these um, environmental impact assessment frameworks including land use, water use, scarcity, 
um, uh, obviously climate change, including carbon, but also eutrophication and acidification and the change of the nutrients in the soil, which then renders it in, you know, a, 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 to cause biodiversity change, which has massive impact on our food systems over time if we don't kind of be careful around that. So we use that um, to go and assess over 200,000 products in the UK retail grocery sector. Uh, we did this with no interaction with um, any of the brand owners themselves. So this was entirely at arm's length. Um, and then we rated about 160,000 of them using our, uh, our platform that we built, using that really complex science, a data platform and pipeline that ingested all this data. And then we translated that into what you can think of as an eco-label framework, where we rated each product with an A to G, and we provided an app, which allows you to scan barcodes. And then we tell you like what we think the estimated impact of that product is from an, an environmental perspective, where G is terrible and A is great. And then we allow you to dig into that and we can tell you what the worst impact is, right? Is it water use? Is it climate change? Um, and then we have a bunch of really interesting facts that you can get along the journey, right? So that's where we, we were earlier this year and we learned a lot. And where we are now is that we've, for the last two months, been building out a business-to-business -business product, which is the other side of this coin, which is where we want to go to brand owners and, and food manufacturers and say, well, why don't you input more primary data, actual data on your production in cycles and water use and energy use, et cetera. And then we can get a better estimate for your product, right? Um, because obviously the first motion we did, we did at arm's length. So we use secondary databases and estimates of, you know, what water and energy use there was. So yeah, we're now trying to complete the two sides. Um, and the ambition is still to provide that infrastructure to connect those two actors to get better sustainable decision-making possible. Wow. You're, you're one of so the, help? It, it does. I'm just thinking, wow, you're one of these, uh, we've got broadly speaking uh, a number of different categories when we have guests on this podcast, Carl, and you're definitely in the, in the really bright, clever camp, I think. Um, I'm kind of blown away by, by what you've just told me. Um, so um, obvious question now then is, and, and kudos to you for what you're doing, because clearly this is a, this has become an identifiable, uh, relevant, real issue, which I think more people are aware of now than they were 10 years ago. Um, but let's just take, Carl, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate for a second. You've got a manufacturer of a product uh, and it suits them for commercial reasons to provide a product that is not uh it's not going to be A on your list, it's going to be E. In other words, it's terrible for the environment, uh, doesn't lead to good sustainability, presents all the challenges that you're trying to overcome. But they say, whether through ignorance or selfishness or for commercial reasons, they say, well, we don't really want to do anything about it. Do you, do you think that this, this sea change of awareness will eventually drive organizations that fall into that camp to do something about their product, their manufacturing, their process? Is it tail wagging dog or is dog wagging tail is kind of my question, really. Do you think there's going to be enough people that get behind this to force organizations to change the way they do things? The short answer is yes. I believe that's already starting to happen. And that's kind of why we decided this was the space for us is because we, we, everything I've researched tells me that people want to be more responsible. They want to, for various reasons, right? Everyone does things for different reasons. And I'm not trying to second guess why people do, but I think there are so many indicators across 
massive surveys uh, that were done by, by organizations sampling 1.5 million people across the world to empirical studies of kind of spend over five years in certain markets um, to look at where people are putting their wallet um, and, and making the choice you know, uh, for products. Um, and essentially what we, what, we, what we kind of landed at a very big kind of aggregate is that a huge significant portion of everyday people want to be more sustainable in their lifestyles, which, include, which includes purchasing of food, you know, cars, clothing, et cetera. The problem is that the intent to action gap is massive. And the reason for that is that there's simply no way for those people to make those choices, right? Um, and that's kind of what we're trying to say is like, you have to provide that visibility because what's going to happen, and to answer your question more specifically, is those brands that are brave, because let's be, let's be clear, you are correct. There are going to be brands out there that all of a sudden are going to be able to use tools and say, well, oh gosh, our impact is awful. Our product is amazing. People love it and we make a lot of money from it but it is really bad. The ones that realize that transparency around that and showing that they're gonna start improving that is going to retain you know, market share and consumer loyalty far more than them hiding that and eventually losing out to the brands that are improving because people will shift their, their wallet and their, their share of wallet to those brands that they believe are aethical and less damaging to the environment. And this is increasingly true for younger demographics, but it's certainly not, at least from, from my research, it's not exclusive. Um, you know, I've seen folks from all walks of life, you know, totally different demographics from an age perspective, socioeconomic, that do want to do the right thing. They're obviously constrained in different ways. Some people, price is still going to be the most important thing. But if you, two, if you give them two options, and one of those options is, you know, much the same price as the other, or maybe marginally more expensive, but it's significantly and you know, in a way that they can put trust behind, less impactful to the environment, you know, almost every single time that they're going to choose the less impactful. So I guess my, 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 the short answer is yes, and I think it's already happening. Um, that's one part. I think the value to brands in terms of what people want to do and the market share that I think they'll get out of this is so high that, that I think they're going to have to, or they'll kind of price themselves out of the market from a, you know, brand loyalty and, and appeal perspective. There's another side to the coin, though, and that is that legislation will force you to, right? So you've already got um, green guidelines coming in in the UK and in the European um, Union that is there to combat greenwashing. And greenwashing is a term that really refers to where companies and products and marketers are making claims on, from an environmental impact perspective about products that are just simply not substantive, right? They are not evidence-based and therefore are potentially very untrue. Uh, the problem is that greenwashing or, or eco-marketing sells. I mean, you, you look at a, a number of um, you know, studies that have done showing the revenue growth of those products that have eco-claims that people put trust into versus those that don't. You know, the growth is, is you know, orders of magnitude higher. So greenwashing sells. The problem is that uh, consumers need to be protected against that. So in the UK, there is the green advertising guidelines that have come in. And what that says is if you make an eco-claim, you really need to be able to provide evidence when you are asked to by the regulator. And the evidence are in things like life cycle assessments. So you can actually show that it has a low water use or it has you know, low carbon output. You can't just make that claim uh, out of hand. And the European Commission is going to do much the same thing. So reporting and regulatory requirements will be the other side of this that will force companies. Now, regulation is obviously kind of like a stick. I think that the better way to get companies to do this is with the carrots, which is showing them that there's value in transparency about their eco and environmental impact and sustainability more generally. Um, even if it's a bad starting point, 
as long as you're actually willing to make that change, you can take that as a you know a narrative and a journey that you take your customers with you on. Mm-hmm. I was I was particularly interested to talk to you on this podcast, Carl, because uh, you know we have listeners from all around the world. There's a fairly significant number of them, I'm very pleased to say. And what we do is we get a lot of questions around, and I'll, I'll use this analogy, if I may, uh, your, your, the size of the challenge that you're outlining around sustainability is, is the world's largest ocean. Let's say it's the Pacific, and you're there, you're stood at the shore, uh, and, and you're looking at this vast expanse and thinking, how do I, how do I tackle this problem, this challenge? And a lot of people write into us and they say, I've got this particular goal or objective, or I've got a problem, and, and it just seems too big, too overwhelming. What you've done is you have identified a challenge, okay, maybe it was driven, uh, maybe the motivation came from looking at your daughters and thinking what's next for them. But how do you start on that journey when something looks almost too big to to even bother with, if I can phrase it like that, because a lot of people unfortunately suffer from inertia. You mentioned that that process of intention to action. How did you put that first foot in front of the other to start that process? Um, I guess I'm an eternal optimist, a little bit stubborn maybe, um, as a personality trait, which helps. But um, I think my experience in kind of seeing what you can achieve um, using the right tools, whether they're technical, whether it's just kind of getting people motivated. So I guess there's a quote I heard that might explain this, which is, it's impossible until it's done, right? And that is largely the way I view this stuff. And my experiences at Skype and at Twilio and at Microsoft, looking at what you can do and the scale that you can achieve through, through technological means and technology is not going to solve this for us. Please don't, don't get me wrong. But technology can help us solve it, right? We still need to want to. And I think we've identified about, you know, as part of my research that people really want to. And if you have that want, right, we're not there for trying to do behavioral change. We're trying to facilitate a behavioral change that people want. And when you have that, and then you, broke, you kind of marry that with the technology that can translate this at scale and put them in the hands of the people that want and by the way i don't just mean consumers because i promise you that businesses also need information they also want to be able to make more informed choices about well if i change this particular piece of my supply line that's going to cost me x amount of money to do what is the, the benefit to that right is that going to provide me with a lower score great but is that going to provide me with a a bottom line or a top line increase because they still need to stay in business right so i think um in terms of my my motivation of what caused me to actually take those challenges because I do believe it is in fact possible based on my experience, um, bringing those things to bear. And because I believe people want to change, right? If you, if, if we, you know, if I've done my research and gone, nobody actually cares, um, that's a very different proposition because introducing a unwanted behavioral change is a, and I've seen this firsthand, is an incredibly difficult uh, task to do. But where you have a desire and you can go find the means to meet that in a way that, is relevant, easy enough to use. Um, yes, I think that therefore makes it the impossible possible, right? If you think about it from the ocean perspective. Mm. And, and I, you know, I'm sitting here listening to you. I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer, Carl. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how the world has changed as significantly as it has even in the last sort of 20 years. And obviously, 
technology has been one of those drivers. As you say, it's not in itself the answer, but it is the facilitator of, of change. Um, given the fact that you are building your own business, probably investing far more hours than you should, given that you have a family, how on earth does Carl Olivier create this kind of work balance, work-life balance? It is a, it's a phrase that we all talk about. We get more questions on work-life balance than probably any other. How, how do you create uh, your work-life balance? Do you use technology to do that? Is it, is it a discipline? Are you still getting it wrong? Uh, how, how do you go about getting that, uh, that balance right as you grow your business and, uh, and, and pursue this ambition of, of changing the one world one step at a time? Indeed. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really tricky question. I think it's, it's slightly different for everyone. Um, I think the first step is acknowledging that you know work is part of life and life is part of work, and there's, it's very hard to distinguish them in, in some sense. So I like to think of this as life balance. <laughs> um, but no, I think um, in all seriousness, I this is a marathon. This is a, a long haul. Um, I've been in you know product teams for a long, long time. Uh, I've seen different ways of working. I've seen the the mad frenetic sprints every two weeks trying to ship something. The heroics overnight. It, you know, coding for 36 hours, getting teams of folks to work over weekends just to ship something out on some artificial deadline on a Friday or a Monday. And I guess the answer I'm saying, that, that the answer to that question is really, this is a long haul. You really don't, it's not something that you want to go crazy. And I, therefore, my life balance is I, I drop my kids off at school every day, twice a week, I pick them up, I watch their sports, I work at, you know, different hours. I don't try and work 18-hour days every day, um, although at times, if that's necessary, I absolutely do. And that's not just me. That's the team, right? So we're quite lucky that a number of the folks that sustained I've worked with for the better part of 12 to 15 years across all the same journeys I've been on, so Skype, Microsoft, Twilio's. And we've learned that, you know, you've got to really be in this for the long haul. And you've also got to acknowledge that everyone has a life and everyone's life is slightly different. So... We don't have a flexi policy. We just have a, you know, we will work around our, our lives, but we will make sure that we're connecting at the right times. We're not, you know, leaving someone hanging. We're, if the work we've committed to do, we do. Um, but everyone needs to, to live their life, that is, um, and, and, and fit their work kind of patterns in around, in around that. So I guess the philosophy and the, the principle here is that, you know, everyone has a life. We'll work super hard around that. Uh, we will work sometimes at really strange hours, but we won't continuously try and do the impossible every week because it's not about that. You'll burn out. So this is a long haul, man. Um, and and I, the other thing I can tell you is that if you do it that way, my experience over the last 20 years is that my productivity is way higher than I'm trying to squeeze every minute out every day to do work. Yeah, that's a really good answer. I, that resonates with me. I, I have a very similar philosophy um you you know can't compromise one in favor of the other and, and vice versa you've mentioned the the word teams a few times now carl so i'd like to pick up on that if i may um build, building a great team what does it take to be part of or to build a great team as a leader as, as you are you you've mentioned the word team clearly very important to you part of your success what makes a good team um so uh, before I answer the, 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 I think there is nothing more important than the team um, in building a business. Without the team, you will not succeed. And that I've seen over and over in my, in my career. Um, in terms of what it takes to building a good team, it's trust and safety. 
first and foremost. I mean, there's the baseline of you've got to have the right skill sets. But, but beyond that, if you want to make an effective team that can constantly, year on year, month on month, whatever it is, deliver a high quality product, service, whatever that team does, if that team doesn't feel trusted and it doesn't feel safe, and I'll dig into that a little bit, you are not going to get there, right? And I've experienced this on both the good part of that, and I've seen you know this not work because of the lack of trust and the lack of safety. Um, the other part of it is that, and and please don't take, but I don't, I I almost don't like the term leadership or leader because people that, in my experience, that that constantly refer to that, and by the way, I'm not pointing fingers. Um, leadership is more about serving your team, in my view, right? And and for that, like, I don't think thinking of yourself as a leader is, is somewhat helpful in, in my view. And, I, and that might be controversial. But so back to the original points, though, safety. And by that, I mean, if a team member has an opinion, if someone on the team, doesn't matter what part of the team, they could be the most junior, the most inexperienced, or quite the opposite. If that team member does not feel safe enough to venture their opinion, either in private to other team members, or as part of a group discussion, or even multiple teams at a company level, then you have a massive problem, right? Um, because everybody in that team has a valid opinion and input, right? You need process around. You need to make sure that you don't have, you know, try to make every decision by committee because you'll never actually get anything done. And that's kind of how you have people that are accountable for certain decisions and therefore they have the power to make a choice and, and, and you know, say, so no, okay, we're going to go down this way. We've heard everyone's input, but we've decided this is the route. And I tell you, if you have trust and if you have safety, that process becomes so much easier because everyone knows their opinion will be heard, won't be ignored and won't be ridiculed. And they know that if you make a choice as a group, as a team, or you know, as a, a person accountable for a decision, that it will be in possession of that input, right? And that when that input is used or not used, it'll be a choice made in, in the right context and framework. So if that helps, but those are the most important elements for me. It does. One other very quick question, if I can link to that that same question, Carl, because again, we get asked a lot of questions around this. You, we've talked about disruption today, and and you know you are a disruptor, and uh, you've acknowledged disruption. You know, is it an ever evolving thing? Um, and many many companies are now proving hugely successful because of their desire to disrupt um, the status quo, which I think many people welcome. But with disruption, let's call it change, comes in the minds of many people pain. And therefore, they find it very difficult to affect change. It seems to come very readily to you. Maybe that's because of your background, the fact you've been doing it for such a long time, and you've seen the results that are achieved as a result of disrupting a marketplace or a product or a process. What do you say to people who are really struggling with this sense of, I want to transition from one place to another that intention to action journey but the whole process of change feels instinctively like it's painful and therefore my instinct says avoid pain and therefore by definition avoid change hmm. uh, very simply my view is that and this is at almost every level of scale personal company societal is that without change it's it, it, it's only stagnation and stagnation to me is is Gosh, it's the worst thing imaginable in my mind, right? Um, change is is learning, it's growth, it's getting better. Um, and yes, pain comes with change, but so does so much more, right? Without change, we as a society would never be where we are. 
you know, we have a lot of good things in our society and, and kind of where we've landed as a species. You know, the, the business I'm in is to highlight that there's a lot of bad things, but part of that change is addressing that, making that visible. And without that, you can't affect meaningful change. So I guess the, the advice I'd give to people is without change, there's zero growth, personal growth, you know, whatever other growth that you're interested in. And there's just stagnation. And, and for me, that is probably the worst thing I can imagine is just stagnating, doing the same thing over and over again. Um, and therefore, I get excited by change. I get, I get really, yeah, well, like, like without change, I, I can't imagine life being as, you know, uh, exciting, I guess might be the best word to use. But it's about opportunity. It's about, you know, without that change, like how do we know what more we can do? How do we know what else we could achieve and, and, and you know, improve or find out? Uh, so my advice is embrace change. Understand that you don't have to do it all at once. You don't have to do it in a you know, binary fashion. I think change can come incrementally, right? As long as you have the mindset that I'm going to change something and not just for the sake of change, but because there's an outcome that you're looking for and that requires change. So I don't know if that helps, but that, that's the way I think about change. It, it does, absolutely. And I, I guess the final question I have before we ask you to give us some more information about how people connect with you. Um, I guess a question I'm very interested in, I know a lot of people will be, you know, you're, here you are starting a, a, an embryonic business. You've, you've got this amazing idea. You've got a passion and desire and, and undoubtedly you're going to do a lot to, to change the, the environment and, and the views of, of many. Uh, but you are, despite your wealth of corporate experience, you are a new business owner building out a business pretty much from the ground upwards. What does a day in the life of Carl Olivier look like? I mean, apart from the fact you work some fairly crazy hours from uh, on occasion, but you know, it's it's very uplifting to hear that you managed to get to sports day and and do the stuff that you that you do with your with your family. But what does a typical day look like if, if there is such a thing as a typical day? Um, I mean, there's there, but there are certain things that I think are quite constant. So there's some typical nature, and a lot of that's around my family. Um, being a present father and husband for me is incredibly important um, because a lot of what motivates me is, is intrinsically linked to those people in my life, right? So, you know, I, I, uh, I, like I said, I drop my kids every day. I collect them a number of times a day, uh, sorry, a week. Um, I try to take the dog for walks with the girls um, as much as I can and my wife. So there's a lot of that, right? So that that is an anchor for me. Um, in terms of the work side, uh, every day is is uh, especially when you're a startup kind of founder. The the main thing that I do daily is to try and help my team do their jobs as best as they can, right? And that means I need to remove obstacles. I need to facilitate them doing the best things they do, which is why we we got them to join the team in the first place, right? So my job as a founder and as a CEO of I mean, a small company is really to empower my team. That's all. That's everything I do is 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 is, is in the service of that. Um, I take on a lot of the administrative work. Um, you know, we're quite small, so there's a lot of admin that I do around accounts and you know payroll and you know all the the machinery that just keeps a business afloat. Um, I also provide as much guidance and soundboarding as I can to the team. I take on um, uh, certain functions within the team. So at the moment, I'm, I'm doing a lot about go-to-market and understanding how we take our products to market. Um, I provide a lot of kind of that kind of framework for the team. 
Um, also, talking to our investors and to potential customers and to advisors and to kind of other folks we'd want to partner with. So I do a lot of that. Every day on that front is fairly different because that's a quite a broad spectrum of, of things. It's not a single focus in terms of discipline. But that is what you take on when you found a business, it's like a small startup. Um, but yeah, everything I do is to make sure that the team can do their role and their job to the best of their abilities without having to worry about that other stuff, right? Um, that's some, my job. Some really fantastic perspectives there that will, will help uh, both current and budding entrepreneurs. Th thank you, Carl. Final couple of questions, if we may. I can't believe that half an hour has gone and some. Um, but, but question one of two, how do we find out more about you? Uh, is, there a, is there a website yet? Is there any social media presence? Are you active on social media personally? So that should anyone wish to reach out to you, they can do. Absolutely. So sustained.com is the website um, that currently really focuses on our consumer uh, app at the moment. But watch that. Uh, we'll be putting up more information over the next few months around our B2B product as that kind of uh, grows up a little. Um, personally, I'm not massively active. I, I am somewhat, but I, I don't know. I, I, I don't post as much as I should, I guess. But I, you can get me on Twitter. It's at Carl Olivier. Um, I'm also uh, Carl Olivier on um, LinkedIn. So both of those can be found. Sustained actually has a presence as well, and uh, we have been active, um, although a lot of that will be on the um, uh, consumer side. So you can find us at, at Sustained Choice on, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and I think that's the thing. Instagram is uh, at Sustained underscore choice. Um, but you can find those from sustained.com. Uh, if you look on the footer, all the links to our kind of company socials are there. Um, and yeah, I mean, if people are interested in connecting with me, LinkedIn or Twitter, just reach out and I'm more than happy to respond. Um, I do plan to become a little more active on, on social media, but uh, um, I guess I'm from a generation where that's not, not my day to day. <laughs> oh, listen, you're in good company today. Uh, you're in very good company, Carl. Um, so uh, final question, the one we ask all of our guests, particularly interested to hear your answer to this one, because you've You've already shared um, such an awful lot, and we've gone in lots of different directions. But uh, I guess the question really that we'd love to hear from you today, Carl, is if one of your daughters, possibly uh, both of them, came up to you one day and said, Dad, look, you know, given all of life's experiences, the ups and the downs, the highs, the lows, the successes, the failures, uh, what's the one mantra, what's the one rule that you would advise us to live our lives by if, if there were only one and no other? Be kind. Literally, just be kind in everything you do to your family, your friends, the world you live in. Like if more people were just kind, in my view, we would live in a very different world. Oh, what a lovely answer. I, I really love that one. Thank you so much. Um, Carl, you've been a superstar, as we knew you would be. Um, very best of luck with Sustained. I mean, what you're doing is, is tremendous. Um, kudos to you for believing in yourself and uh, and your family, putting them first and thinking about future generations. If only there were more Carl Olivier's in the world, again, it would be a much better place. So thank you for being a fabulous guest on the Sandro Forte podcast and look forward to staying in touch and to hearing about all of your successes in the future. Thank you, Sandro. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And yeah, I hope people find some something of use. They, they absolutely will, I have no doubt. And thank you to all of you for joining us on the Sandro 40 podcast again. 
Uh, it never ceases to amaze me the number of people who tune in from all over the world. So uh, do keep up the good work. We appreciate it and do let as many people know about it as you possibly can. If you've got a question for Carl, you now know, you now know how to put my teeth in. You now know how to, uh, that's the good thing about live podcasts. Um, you now know how to contact Carl directly, or of course you can email us with a question. It's hello at sandraspodcast.com. Please remember to leave those reviews on iTunes. They're really important, just so we know what kind of guests you'd like in the future. And it does look like this podcast is going to roll on and on and on, despite my best endeavours to retire after three years. But finally, uh, do connect with me if you wish to. It's at Sandro Forte on Twitter and the real Sandro Forte on Instagram. I think you know that by now. Thank you once again to Carl Olivier uh, and all of his team and all that he's doing. Very best of luck to them. Thank you once again to all of you from different parts of the world for tuning in. And we will see you with another terrific guest this time next week.